90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm doing great, John. Finally back home. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think this is the closest we've ever been when we recorded a show. (laughs) How many miles are we apart? Oh, it's probably about 300 and something. I'm I'm across the state line in Arkansas right now. Excellent. Um, Is it as hot there as it is in Oklahoma? (laughs) Yes, it was 75 at about 6 o'clock this morning (laughs) with a high of 91. So, you know, welcome home. (laughs) Well, we got 101, so I think think we've got you beat. Um, I really am lamenting leaving Colorado, even though it was getting pretty warm there as well, but not as warm as it is here. And you can tell by my complaining... I don't like the summer very much. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, my blood is definitely thinned. Uh, I guess thickened, actually, from being up in (laughs) Pennsylvania. It's it's pretty warm down here. And also having to, uh, you know, come up with some adaptive solutions on the fly for (laughs) podcasting. Um, Your boxes that you have everything set up on are are quite good. (laughs) I'm actually at a desk for the first time and... (laughs) <laughs> in six weeks so <laughs> yes and i'm in a room with boxes on a bed trying to get away from the sound of pendulum <laughs> clocks that seem to be everywhere in this house are you staying with doc brown i don't understand <laughs> you know it, it would seem like it <laughs> <laughs> well that's a that's akin to the cricket noises when i was trying to record at camp i guess so we all have our <laughs> recording crosses to bear <laughs> yes, you all don't get to hear all of the fun sounds that we try to get away from when recording. It's amazing how sensitive these mics are. <laughs> yeah, they are pretty impressive. Um, so, you're very close. You're back home in Arkansas. Where are you on your way to? I am on my way to Austin just after the 4th for the SciPy Scientific Python programming conference. So, I imagine this is a pretty good... Nerd fest, but I'm actually quite excited because you keep telling me I need to learn Python. So I'm really excited to hear about what you guys talk about there. You go there every year, right? I do. And this, actually, I think, I don't know when they started this, but for the last two years for sure, they've had a geophysics specific section. And so we looked at seismic tools, log tools, all kinds of stuff last year. It was really interesting. And that's. Well, I'm doing a poster this year, but of course it's geo- geophysics track focused. Wow. How many people attend this conference? A few hundred. That's impressive. Um, yeah, yeah we, fill a, we fill a decent-sized ballroom. I hear a lot of people, you know, using this. Obviously, in geology, there aren't a ton of people that do programming. But on the geophysics side, clearly if there's a whole section of them, then it's a pretty powerful tool. Yeah, it really is. And it's one of those things where it may not be the fastest programming language. It's interpreted instead of compiled like C. Mm -hmm. So that would mean that, you know, your program that does large matrix math things won't run nearly as fast. But computers are so fast now and you do have to sleep. (laughs) The the development time that it saves for me is one of those things. It's like, well, it's really not worth spending a lot more on development time to get a program that runs a lot faster when I can start it and go to bed, and it's probably going to be done by the morning for the size of problems that I work on. Uh, that's really cool. Um, I'll be excited to hear what other like new stuff that you see there that you didn't know were some applications for your favorite programming language. 
Yeah, and hopefully I'll be able to do an interview from there. So surprise, whoever we end up interviewing. <laughs> Welcome to fame and fortune. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the second part. Exactly. Right. Just roll on it. <laughs> well, this week it is the 4th of July here in the U.S., Yay. So everybody's going to be setting off fireworks and celebrating the independence of our country. So I thought that would be a fun thing to talk about on this show, is geology and the Revolutionary War. All right. Um, so <laughs> when I think of this, I think, you know, obviously the Northeast. Um, do you have anywhere in mind particularly to talk about? Because there's a lot of rocks up there. I mean, granted, they're all covered up by grass and trees. <laughs> Yeah, I think most places it's all cover, which translates to cement <laughs> in the Northeast. And quaternary deposits, like you said. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I think uh, deposits. <laughs> there's lots of things we could talk about up there, but I think maybe New Jersey would be a good place for this show. So you want it to be a short show then? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, admittedly, I know nothing about the geology of new jersey i didn't really even know there were rock outcrops there i guess um yeah well we can talk about a place called the watchung mountains okay so i'm assuming these are not glacial in origin like most of everything else up there no these are more volcanic in origin okay which is fun Yes, yeah, so we're looking at giant basaltic deposits, and you found something from the New Jersey Geologic Survey that talked about these being intrusions, right? Right, exactly. Um, so they're, the Wachungs basalts are made up of lava flows um, that originated from the Palisades intrusion, so most everyone's heard of the Palisades. So these are late Triassic, early Jurassic in age. Right. And I would say the name mountains is a little bit generous. <laughs> We're looking at four or five hundred foot tall ridges in reality here. <laughs> right, exactly. So the Watchungs are very creatively named, as you pointed out. We have <laughs> yes. first Watchung Mountain, second Watchung Mountain, and third Watchung Mountain. <laughs> I yes, you would think they were named by engineers. Ah, exactly. I almost feel like every mountain range should be named like this because it's quite quite easy. I guess it just depends on which direction you're counting from. Um, <laughs> but these ridges sort of form natural barriers um, to human expansion because they're these big basalt ridges, three or 400 feet high. Um, and they form this geologic barrier beyond the Piedmont west of the Hudson River. So they've traditionally contained the westward spread of urbanization, but they were also important <laughs> strategically right right so during the revolutionary war george washington like i said used these and made the middlebrook encampments there and these were great places to hide and watch the british so you could look over towards new brunswick and monitor british movements and do what you could to disturb them exactly these are sort of um geologically speaking so they're part of these old dike and sills and then there's a whole bunch of outliers that go along with them so it's not only these like three big ridges but there are um several ridges behind it so if you're in between these two ridges obviously strategically that's a great place to be um it's a pretty large area so you could hide a lot of troops 
in between these ridges and not be seen in the otherwise sort of flat landscape of the area. Right. So geology often provides, as it turns out, very important deciding factors in battles, whether you get trapped in a valley or you have a ridge that you can hide behind very effectively. Uh, So I was surprised looking up some examples at how important it was and how much people knew about it during the Revolutionary War. I mean, you always hear about, you know, you want the high ground and all these sort of strategic things. And I guess, you know, we talk about, I've taken some classes in college. I know you've read a lot of books about it too. You know, you always think about strategy and all this stuff, but you don't necessarily think about how geology sort of influences that, right? Because this isn't just geomorphology we're talking about, because these aren't modern deposits that are sort of shaping the landscape, right? These are Mesozoic volcanics that haven't been eroded due to their you know, they're really hard to erode. <laughs> right. So that's why they're left over there. Um, there's some cool stuff about the Wachungs in general, not just strategically, but also as is often associated with uh, volcanic suites. Um, there was a lot of mining that went on, uh, and apparently there were some copper mines that were exploited uh, in the Wachungs, not actively now, but so they also represented a sort of economic um interest in the northeast right and even the first Wachung mountain had some a waterfall on its face that was even exploited for a hydroelectric system wow i wow yeah so see how important tiny pieces of geology are (laughs) (laughs) and later they played a strategic military role again as they became home to a nike missile base oh see you can hide a lot in between these these tiny little mountains, obviously. Um, <laughs> apparently, they were also um, economically exploited for the railroads as the basalt was used sort of as the foundation for a lot of train tracks. Yeah, so you never know where your economic resources and strategic resources will come from. Exactly. Um, these are I'd never heard of the Wachung Mountains before you brought them up to talk about. So this is because really, I mean, a lot of what you guys talk about up there, right, is metamorphic complexes, because there's some beautiful metamorphics up there um, in the Appalachians and a lot of structural geology that takes place there. But uh, this is kind of a neat thing that I didn't know existed. So speaking about geology being important, uh, that reminds me again of Colorado Springs, which is really close to our field camp, and how important geology is for the military in that town. (laughs) Yes, you have a wonderful mountain vault of technology yes, out there. Yes, literally. <laughs> um, and so Cheyenne Mountain is in Colorado Springs, and it's super scary. <laughs> um, <laughs> Carson, uh, Carson Army Base is right there, but also in Cheyenne Mountain is NORAD. So within this mountain, the government's hollowed out you know, this area where there are a lot of offices and stuff. We actually went and played golf in Colorado Springs on the base golf course, and uh, we played with a guy that works in Mountain. That's what they say. They're like, yeah, I work in Mountain. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So for anybody that's not familiar with NORAD, really quickly, this is the North American Aerospace Defense Command headquarters. So this is where lots of aerospace and space object tracking happens, right? Right, exactly. Um, Both of the guys that we wound up playing golf with did those jobs on different levels. Um, One of them was an operator, so I assume he had a lot to do with, you know, the tracking 
of these space objects. And you can easily recognize Cheyenne Mountain because it has a bajillion <laughs> antennas on top of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and all these big signs that say, don't come any closer to this mountain. <laughs> so that's sort of... Um, I mean, that's a modern-day strategic use of the geology, right? It's this big, hulking mountain where they have all this really protected, um, sensitive government equipment in. Plus, you get the added advantages, advantage of altitude. So you've got this big antenna arrays way on top of this mountain. Yeah, no, it's it's a great location. But so that's when you were going on one of your field trips for field camp, right? Well, that you pass Cheyenne Mountain. That was when I went to play golf one weekend. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, normally you take the students. Uh, we do. Through there normally as well. we go up to Pikes Peak, so that's just north of Cheyenne Mountain. Um, Pikes Peak was closed this year for the first three weeks of camp due to the amazing amount of snow that they had. So we didn't actually make it, but the students usually get to go by there, and uh, we usually go up Pikes Peak. So, like I said, that's right next to Cheyenne Mountain, and the students get to see. Um, you know, the whole, the Air Force Academy is there in Colorado Springs and, like I said, Carson um, Army Base. And so the students see sort of some of the strategic and more modern uses of geology. It's not just about studying ancient depositional environments, although I don't know why anyone would want to study anything else. <laughs> <laughs> but that's my bias coming through. <laughs> so were your students and you glad to be through with field camp after six weeks oh boy that last week was rough let me tell you <laughs> uh, so once we got back from our regional field trip which was just an absolute success like I can't stress enough like you can be a geologist and you can be a good geologist if you read a lot of stuff about geology but you have to go to all these different places to be an excellent geologist I feel like and the more I travel the more I feel like I soak up about geology just from being in a different tectonic environment, in a different, you know, suite of rocks that I'm used to. And that's what the regional trip did. And so we came back from this, from the Tetons, so this extensional, very young deformation uh, that created these amazing mountains in Wyoming. Anyone should go see them. It's a great place. Um, and then we came back to Canyon City. And so back to our also pretty young, I guess, uh, Laramide Faults and Folds at Twin Mountain. And it's the most physically demanding of our, <laughs> <laughs> yes, of our mapping areas, which is hard at the end of June because it was finally getting pretty hot in Colorado and the gnats were out in droves. Oh, yeah, that would be oh, a rough time to do it. It was awful. Usually Twin Mountain, so it's pretty tall. Um Usually there's a pretty good breeze, but it was just stagnant, and the gnats were awful. So anyone who's done field work in Colorado in July knows that these things are the most wretched things. You can put a mosquito net on your head. They can still get through. <laughs> they grow to you know the smallest micron <laughs> size possible to make it through <laughs> that mesh. And so you're constantly like inhaling them. They get around your ears and your eyes, and oh. So that made Twin Mountain difficult, um, <laughs> but not to mention the really tough geology. There are a lot of really cool um, sort of structural features there that I can't talk about because I don't want to give anything away. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> but maybe we'll talk about some similar things in the future because the structure at Twin Mountain is really amazing. Um, also located there is a, it's a culvert, so Highway 50 that goes east to west across Colorado goes right by Twin Mountain, and there's a big culvert underneath it where all of the field camps of the area, and as we talked about, there are a ton of field camps that come to this area, have all sort of left their mark. And it's really cool to go in and see all these signatures, basically from students like from the 70s when this culvert was built. You know, my signature from 15 years ago when I was at field camp is still there. So so that's always a cool trip down memory lane to see everyone's names of all these alumni and then all these other schools that have struggled with Twin Mountain and then wrote awful limericks about how bad the geology is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. That's how you know they're geologists and NPR listeners to wait, wait, don't tell me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I don't know if any of the limericks were that bad, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So we got back just in time to see the uh, 4th of July festivities. Yeah, and I think you found the Fun Paper Friday this week, and I think it was a really good choice considering this is sort of a 4th of July show. Uh, yeah, um, so I was looking up stuff about, you know, because obviously, as I'm sure I have not hid my distrust of chemistry on this show, <laughs> but there's not, I'm sure there's some physics of fireworks, but I mean, fireworks really come down to chemistry, right? We all know you know, the different colors and stuff come from different elements that are burned during the fireworking process. Right. So you can get, you know, this is, again, a little bit of geology. We have to get these resources. They basically use metal salts to make the fireworks colored. So we're looking at, like, say, strontium and lithium for red or barium for green or copper and cobalt for blue. So there's a lot of chemistry, but also some geology to get these resources. And if you think about it, you're exploding a lot of material in the sky overhead. Not all of it is going to burn. Some of it is going to come back down to Earth, right? Exactly. So there's a lot of studies about what actually, you know, burning fireworks do to the atmosphere because you aerosolize a lot of different particles. And like John just said, you know, it's not an efficient process. If fireworks are efficient and you burned everything, it'd be a different story. But not everything gets consumed during fireworks. And I mean, the 4th of July is clearly not even the biggest. <laughs> I mean, it's probably the <laughs> biggest in the U.S., but like Diwali in India, and there's a lot of studies about what the um, burning of the fireworks does. But the paper that I found is called Perchlorate Behavior in a Municipal Lake Following Fireworks Displays. And it's from Wilkin et al., and it's in Environment and Science Technology from 2007. Um, but this paper was really neat because it's a study done on a lake in Oklahoma, actually, um, following three years of post-fireworks displays and talking about the perchlorate concentrations in the lake due to these fireworks. Right. So this was down near Ada, Oklahoma, and you're looking at pre-firework concentrations of something like 0.04 plus minus some micrograms per liter perchlorate and then immediately after the fireworks, the concentrations go up anywhere between 20 and 1,028 times. Yes, exactly. Um, and so I didn't, because admittedly, I'm not a huge chemistry fan. Um, I didn't really know, you know, perchlorate, why do we even care 
about that. Like, why are we tracking perchlorate? And it's because um, there's not a lot of natural perchlorate out there. And what is out there is usually biologic in origin. But if you get a lot of perchlorate, it's one of those like hormone disruptors. And it has a lot of implications, say, on the fish in a lake with high perchlorate concentrations. They'll have like thyroid problems and a lot of these hormone disruptions. And then when humans consume it, they can have the same problems. So either by eating fish that are in this water or drinking the water itself, perchlorate is really bad. Um, but there's not a lot of natural pathways to get rid of perchlorate, except for biogenic processes. So once you put perchlorate in a lake, it can stick around for a long time, which this study talks about up to 80 days. There are elevated perchlorate levels that are above like the action levels of the EPA. Right. And unsurprisingly, when it, they mention other sources of perchlorate, other anthropogenic sources, uh, they come down to rocket fuel and missiles. <laughs> right, exactly. And if those were totally efficient processes, that wouldn't be a problem either. Right. But as anything with these large systems, it's really hard to get a full, complete, efficient burn of any kind of explosive, really. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so John just said rocket fuel. Um, poor chlorate can form in the atmosphere due to lightning strikes as well. So, you know, there are natural ways of getting it um, into our atmosphere and water cycle, but most of it is anthropogenic, which is why, you know, it could be a real problem. Um, so these large, up to a thousand times, and it hangs around for a long time. There's no sort of adsorption that goes on from the sediments in the lake. So they tested not just the water, but they very carefully tested a lot of the lake sediment to see if this poor chlorate was removed just through, you know, absorption onto the clays that are being formed in the bottom of the lake. But that did not happen. Um, the perchlorate reduction in the water was linear, highly temperature dependent because it's mostly biogenically removed. Right. And they even say during the absorption tests, which this is one of those things where it's really important to have confidence intervals or <laughs> ranges when you're doing experimental work. Uh, they had a core of some of the lake sediment and introduced some perchlorate to measure how much of it was absorbed. And they said they would recover 96 to 102 percent <laughs> of the perchlorate. <laughs> yep. Thanks, sediment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and another core they found, it removed a very minor amount. They said 10 micrograms per gram, uh, which worked out to something like 100 nanomoles per gram. Not enough to really do much to mitigate a problem this large. Oh, right, exactly. And the problem happens really quickly. Um, the sampling in the lake, this is over a three-year period, um, the sampling in the lake took place 14 hours after the fireworks show. So not, you know, just a little more than half a day. And that's when the levels would spike up to 1,028 times the mean baseline levels. So this is a really obvious sort of cause and effect situation. This poor chlorate is coming from us celebrating the, you know, independence of our country. <laughs> Right. And they did look for, I was a little little sad that they couldn't resolve this. They did look for some of the metal salts, uh, you know, mm -hmm. sodium, cadmium, magnesium, all that, and weren't able to find it. But they believe that's probably because the levels of those are naturally pretty high and variable. And by the time you're trying to detect such a minor concentration, it just 
was not resolvable, even with the really incredible analytic instruments they have right now. Right, and it's kind of that's kind of an interesting point too. That you know, it's hard, and so often in the media, not so much in the scientific circles, but in the media, we fight about what the anthropogenic effects of things are. And I felt like this sort of paper, even though it's from two thousand and seven, I mean, it's not that that old, but it very clearly shows, you know, that this is an anthropogenic element that we're talking about. There's really no other way to get these sort of levels in there so to think that we're not affecting you know our environment we've known that in science for a long time that we are and this is one of those examples you can't sort of track these other things but this one is very clearly like these man i wish i had data like her in these graphs (laughs) (laughs) yes it is pretty impressive actually a lot of times with geochemistry you see huge at least I know I'll get yelled at by the geochemist about this, but it seems like he always sees huge uncertainty <laughs> intervals. And that's just because it's hard. You're detecting tiny amounts of things. Uh, but this is beyond a doubt very clear. So I see that a lot when I use geochemistry to sort of analyze some of my rocks. I work on these dolomites and, you know, there are, people do a lot of carbon and oxygen isotope studies on dolomites. But I feel like, you know, it is pretty variable what does it mean? There's all these different things that could be responsible for changing the carbon and oxygen levels. And so it's sort of hard to suss out what that means. So I thought this was kind of a cool paper in terms of the geochemistry is really clear about what's happening. Right. So are you going to run out and do some sampling this (laughs) fourth? Uh, probably. Um, I live out in the country and my neighbors have been hitting it hard um, (laughs) (laughs) since the day that I got back. I've got some real pyromaniacs in my neighborhood, obviously. So (laughs) I'm sure our neighborhood pond is just chock full of perchlorate, but I don't eat anything out of that pond. So I think we'll be okay. Very nice. Well, that's your fun paper Friday for this 4th of July show. If you have any fun papers that you would like to hear us discuss, or pictures of fireworks or perchlorate measurements in your local <laughs> lake, you can send those to us. Shannon, how can they do that? Please send us your geochemical analysis, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're also on Twitter, so you could just, you know, code up some of those figures in Python and send us some screenshots. We are at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 